You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 96. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And you can go to codingblocks.net where you can find things like show notes and examples and uh, discussion and whatnot. Did you just say uh twice in that sentence? That's it. That's right, man. Take it. Uh, uh, well, Alan, uh, it's your turn. Uh, uh, Alan. Oh, uh, that's it. I'm walking away. All right, uh, so. Alan? If we, can, we, can we change his name from Alan to Alan? 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 Yep. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at CodyBlocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at CodyBlocks or head to www.CodyBlocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I am non-Alan uh, Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. Uh, <laughs> and I'm Michael Outlaw. I just vomited. This episode is sponsored by Manning Publications. Manning is running a special promotion this December. The countdown to 2019 will run on Manning.com all the way through December. Answer just a single question every day, and you'll be in the running to win free ebooks, videos, and even a whole year's worth of new releases. Plus, Every week, everyone will get to enjoy massive discounts on Manning products. All you need is to sign up to Manning's deal of the day at manning.com slash mail-preferences. That's www.manning.com slash mail-preferences, and you're good to go. Also, while you're up there, take a moment to shop around for your favorite books and use the code COD. B-L-O-C-K-4-0 to save 40%. All right. So as we like to do, we like to start off each episode with a big thank you to all those who have taken the time to leave us a review or written us. So either which way. So on iTunes, we've got Crossling, JLA115, Ross44, Ross, Hutchibong, John Mabel, Code in My Robe, Saltashi, I'm going to go ahead and do him some justice here because he went through the effort. Sex and Edger, maybe. And then Bubba Cow. All right. And Stitcher, we've got um, uh, Jarvanen. Sorry about that. Uh, Elelville Coldisrael, uh, SB Good, Maxim Bendis, and Nathan Iyer. We really appreciate that. Thank you so much for leaving those reviews. Even though we butcher your names, we really do appreciate it. So thank you. You rock. Wait, is that Iyer or Liar? Oh, I don't know. Ah. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Hey, hey, by the way, it, I forget who it was, but whoever said that they learned more in one episode about big O notation of coding uh, blocks right. than they did about two semesters in college of it—that's amazing. And I feel you. <laughs> I was there. Yeah, you need to get a refund, man. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's an option. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you guys didn't go to Costco. You. <laughs> <laughs> All right, a quick update from, uh, I think it was the last episode where we talked about um, C-sharp strings and how they um, kind of dedupe the memory and use them as a performance optimization. Uh, the technical term for that is actually string interning, and I didn't realize that's actually kind of common in a lot of languages, so you can read about it on Wikipedia. But I wanted to point out, great tip from uh, Chumac84, he um, had a correction for us. Uh, it only works for string literal. So those are going to be strings that like show up in quotes in your code. So if you do something like, um, you know, get date dot to string, even though that may have the same value of memory, it's not going to get the same benefits as you would as if you had that thing in, um, in quotes. So, uh, I just thought it was kind of interesting and, uh, he sent me a little code snippet that was really cool. So really appreciate that. We love getting that feedback, especially when it, uh, it results in us learning something. Yep. Yeah. I want to be clear there. We're talking about hard coded strings. Yeah. Okay. 
That's yep. that's basically what you're talking about. And by the way, we've gotten some really, really good comments on the past two data structure episodes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're not going to cover everything that the people shared up there, but there's some really good things about, you know, why unmanaged code is faster than managed code and some of the reasons behind it and all that. So, you know, if you want to go continue the conversation and learn some more, definitely head up to, you know, slash episode 94 or slash episode 95 and take a look at those because there's, there's some great comments up there. So. Yeah. So continuing on, uh, this time we're talking about a couple more data structures. You want to kick it off outlaw? Yep. So let's start with hash tables. Uh, so we've built up to here, right? We, we, Started with, uh, well, we started with primitives. So don't don't let me talk to you about floats again, because I will. <laughs> but uh, you know, as we got into the more advanced data types, uh, you know, arrays kind of laid some groundwork there. So now we understand that you know arrays have their place. There's a lot of benefits to arrays. Um, you know, as a way of uh, keeping a collection of data, but also like some of the performance trade offs, right? That you might get. So they're they're great for um, lookups, you know, uh, random lookups. But if you had to like insert something in the middle, not so hot there. Uh, versus the linked list on the other extreme, which were great for being able to insert or remove items from the middle of a list. But if you had to search or scan that list, they're not so hot, right? So what if we could live in some utopian world where we could get the benefits of both. That'd be great, right? Well, that's where the hash table comes in. So, um, you get, you get these, these kind of benefits with both of these, uh, or with the linked list and the arrays, you get that with the hash tables. Um, but there's some trade off. There's still some caveats. There's some things to be aware of, right? So, um, yeah, so I, I had here like the hash table smashes these two worlds together, and so uh, uh, hang on a second. When you say hash table, are you talking about maps or dictionaries or uh, you know I've, I've seen these things used by different bunch of different names in different languages? Are we talking about the same thing? Uh, no, no, All right. no. I'm just talking about hash table. Well, all right. I mean, yeah, because that's the other thing that gets weird too. Is like, let's not let's not confuse it with the talk of a language yet okay we're talking about like hash table data structures and like classic computer science yes all right so because there there are like depending on your languages you know it might get a little bit more the 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 terminology might get a little bit more jumbled and mixed up right um at least in the c-sharp world though there are classes for both so there's a separate class for hash table a separate class for dictionary well, yeah, and just, we talked to, like for an hour on arrays and JavaScript and how they're not always arrays. So right. I'm not surprised the hash tables are no different. Well, just on the naming thing in on the Wikipedia article, just to bring it up, it is also referred to as a hash map. So again, not getting into the actual implementations, whether it be Java or C sharp or any of those, they are sometimes called one or the other hash table or hash map. Yeah. So, um, I mean, specifically the MSDN documentation, they succinctly describe that hash table as the hash table class 
as it represents a collection of key value pairs that are organized based on the hash code of the key. And even while they might be documenting their specific implementation of it, I mean, I felt like that was a pretty good overall description of what the hash table is and, you know, what purpose it's trying to provide for you, right? So how does the hash table work? So let's consider that at the core, the core structure of the hash table is an array. And within this array, each element of this array contains an object that contains the key and some value. So it's, it's not just a simple like integer, you know, at that key, it's, it's some complex type of object, right? Um, This now, if you're reading the documentation from like a Wikipedia, they refer to it as buckets. Uh, Some, I think in the imposter handbook, uh, it was referred to as slots. There's not really a, like a name that I really liked for any of these. Like buckets, super felt like a weird name. Like why would you call it a bucket, not just like a name value pair or or something else? I I don't know. But a bucket seems like a really weird name for what you would call that particular index within the array. But so I, I digress. So you you have the underlying structure of the hash table as an array for a key value lookup. The data that you want to read or write to the hash table, uh, you're going to use that data to create a hash and that hash will serve as the index to the array. Right. And uh, I, I heard it once a good example when I first learned about hash tables and they were kind of trying to describe the purpose of the hash function. And the example that they started off with was uh, not something that you would see in like production, like a real language. But uh, the example I heard is like, let's say you've got a word, you've got English words and you want to store them in a hash table. We may take the word that you're trying to store, take a look at the first letter and then store it in a location based on that first letter. So, you know, if the, the word is Abigail, then we're going to go ahead and uh, take that first letter. Be like, okay, this is an A. So let's go over here. Next word, let's say, is um, uh, .NET Core. And we say, okay, that's a D. So let's put it over there with the Ds. And then later when you come to look something up, say, okay, give me back uh, Abigail. Then we could go and look in the A's. And so it's really fast for inserts. It's fast for um, looking up things too. So it's just a good diet structure. Now, in that example, it's a really bad choice because, uh, you know, if we add the word Allen in there, suddenly we've got two words now that both start with an A. And so we've got a collision. Yeah. So this is where... like you're saying, the implementation of the hash table can vary. There's multiple implementations of them. And really what's changing behind there is like how they're handling collisions, the decisions they're making. So going along with your example there with um, Abigail and Alan, you, you've, your hashing function in this case, in this example that you gave is only looking at the first letter. So it picked a for both of them. There was a collision. So how does it put the second one in? So, This is where, like, let's think of it being another, a a linked list. So you have an array of indexes and then a linked list, uh, that, that, that a particular index, in this case, the index for a would point to, and Alan would get tacked on to the end of that linked list. So when you want to look up Alan, you're, you're going to go to the A's, then you're going to scan through the A's and and you're hoping that you're not going to have to go 
deep. Um, you know, you're not going to have like, you know, again, Joe's alphabetical hashing algorithm is probably not the greatest one. Sorry, Joe. So you're going to have a ton of collisions in that particular example, but let's pretend yep. that you didn't because really the idea of the hash hashing function is that the collisions are going to be rare is the hope. I mean, they're not going to be, they're going to happen, but you, you definitely want them to happen less often than, uh, than not. So, so that's the idea, right? Or are we, can we agree to that structure, a, an array for the index for the hashes and then a linked list for where the values are within there. So is that every implementation of the, because like, <clears throat> I don't know. It, it's, it, they talk about collisions and there's got to be some sort of well, method to handle the collision. So is that the standard way it's done? Okay. Let's talk about, okay. So you can't talk about hash tables without getting into a big conversation about the, the ways to resolve these uh, collision strategies, right? So there's popular collision strategies. And uh, if you, there, you go to the Wikipedia page and there were a bunch in there, but what seemed to be like the two more popular ones were the separate chaining and open addressing um, variations. So in the separate chaining implementation, um, you know, you would have, have those pointers, but when there's a collision, right, you'll traverse that, that list, look for your key. Right. And um, so this is basically the example that I, that I gave a minute ago. And, you know, assuming that you have a good hash function, you're rarely going to have more than three items in any given index. So, you know, when you think about the, we talked about linked list being awful, just awful for uh, traversal, right? And that you that wouldn't be your greatest choice for doing any kind of sorting. But because these are so small, remember uh, the article that we talked about that we referenced before, like everything is fast for small n, right? So it's it's going to be good enough uh, in this particular example. Cause like if you only have three elements, that's, that's assuming you don't have a bunch of collisions, which you should never have a ton of collisions. If you have a good hashing algorithm, basically. well, which is also another point too. Don't try to roll your own hashing function, <laughs> right? Like if you, if you can just use the library's hashing function, like if you had to create your own hash table, then if you could use a hashing function that's already built into either the operating system or the library or whatever that that's available to you, you're probably going to be better off than if you tried to roll your own hashing algorithm. That's where you're, you're going to get into trouble and have uh, more potential for collisions. Yeah. You want an even distribution. So, and you want like a wide distribution too. So you want a, a lot of different values because you want to keep those lists short. So the, the alphabetical thing is terrible. Like you're not going to get that many Z's. You're probably going to get a lot of A's. And besides, there's only 26 buckets. So the chances of you having more than three items in your linked list is, is really small, depending on how many numbers you're, you're shoving in there. I always did wonder what kind of hashing algorithms they were using. I've never really seen a good example of like, Oh, hey, here's how .NET does it. It's based off of the memory addresses or something. So I just kind of wondered, like, with the hashtag with thousands and thousands of keys, like, what algorithm are they using to divide those up evenly? And, and one other thing to point out here too is, while we're talking about this, there's this whole notion of collision, and that's because the hash can't be perfect, right? Right. And there's there is this this notion in the Wikipedia article that's interesting that says the perfect hash function. So 
that can only exist if you know all the items ahead of time. So that, that makes sense, right? Yeah. If, if you know exactly what your data set is, then you can write the perfect hashing algorithm, which is not the case in 99.999% of the time. So, so these collisions we're talking about happen because you have a very good hashing algorithm that can't be perfect. Correct. And, and, you know, Joe kind of hit on another, um, another good point too, that you want that ideally. Okay. So going to your point about you're not going to have a perfect, uh, hashing algorithm unless you knew all of the data up front. So then whatever best, you know, as good as you can get hashing algorithm you want, you want it to have an even distribution of where it's going to place things. Because again, you know, going with that assumption that you're not going to have any more than three items in the, uh, in a given index within the hash tables array, internal array, right? In order to make that kind of assumption, then that assumes that your hashing function does create a good, uh, even distribution when getting random data to it. Hey, uh, one other thing I, I wanted to add, or I didn't know where you finished. Sorry. No, go ahead. I just want to say, um, one thing that's really important too is that hashing function has to be performant. So obviously we don't want it to scale poorly based on like the size of the input, right? We don't want to have like a big, long, slow hashing algorithm. This thing needs to, to happen fast. If you look at like the, you know, the big O cheat sheet or something and, and look at uh, the lookup times and the insert times for hash table, it's, it puts them at O of one constant time for fast lookup because it's assuming a good algorithm and it's treating that as constant time, which means that the bigger your hash table gets, it needs to keep about about the same. And, you know, here we're talking about linked lists, which we know the insertion there and lookup time is going to be O of N, but they kind of cheat a little bit. And so there's like a little asterisk in, you know, the Wikipedias of the world, whatever they talk about hash tables. And they're like, well, it's basically O of one. It's basically constant time for lookups and inserts in, in the normal case, but that's really not so much the case for the, the worst case scenario. But, uh, it just happens so infrequently if we have a good hashing algorithm, which is like this magical question mark that we don't have to worry about it so much. And in practice, it works out really, really well. And they say, they say the average time is O sub one, right? So the average. So that's why you can get away with that. And I'm sure Mike's going to get into some, some ways that it goes awry. Yeah. So, well, before we go any further there, let's, let's go, let's cover another one of the popular collision strategies, which is called, open addressing. So in this implementation, uh, the element in the array are the buckets themselves. So rather than the previous one where the elements in the array were pointers to linked list of buckets in this, in the open addressing, the item that is in the index is the item itself. Again, I hate the term bucket, but, um, that's what everybody uses apparently. Yeah. So, so what this means is, Let's say that let's go with let's let's continue the example of Joe's uh amazing first letter hashing algorithm. So uh Alan and Abigail we'll just skip let's skip Alan for a moment. We only have Abigail in the list. And now Brandon comes in. So Abigail is in the first uh array index. Brandon comes in, he goes into the second because it's a B. Well, now when Alan gets inserted into the list, he would actually move Brandon down. So it would be Abigail in the first index, 
Allen in the second and Brandon in the third index. <clears throat> so you see how this already got weird, right? The hash value only serves as a starting point for the where you would look up the data from. So meaning that during an, a write operation, if you go to that index in the array and something is already there, uh, you would continue on looking for an em- empty slot. Now, I, in in the example that I just gave, I kind of smashed, you know, uh, Abigail and Brandon's indexes like right next to each other. And in reality, there would be some space there. But um, so that, you know, because what you're doing is when you get to that first index, again, your the the index that your that you your hashing function computes is just the starting point. So once you get to that index and you're trying to traverse from there forward through the array, looking for the next thing that you looking for the actual item you're trying to get to, you're only going to look at the you're only going to keep looking until you get to an empty slot. If you get to an empty slot, then that means that you never found what you were looking for, right? Um, if you were doing a read. And if you were doing a write, then that's that would be where you would put the item, right? Does that make sense? So open addressing sounds awful to me in terms of performance. Yeah, it just I don't, I don't know. I guess it's kind of unbounded. It's like how long does it take you to look up an item in the worst case? So it's like, well, in the worst case, uh, we keep looking in every little chunk of memory that could possibly kind of fit this thing. So it's. Yeah, as you kind of start one spot, it's not there. Well, like either let me rehash it or let me look at the memory spot next to it or something like that, or you know, some sort of method for determining the next place to look. And then you just keep looking until you're out of places to look. And yeah, that could potentially be pretty bad. So that seems pretty, pretty bad to me. Yeah, it sounds bad, but it, it also sounds like even behind the open addressing thing, there's other, there's additional, you know, features or ways to go about doing it there's there's like several well-known ones linear probing quadratic probing double hashing and it's basically so you're not just going to the next one you might be chopping it up doing similar things like binary searches or something like that so that you're trying to scan those indexes really fast right yeah i mean i i imagine that the performance of it isn't that awful because you're only using it's only for things that happen to hash to the same value, Spot, right. which again, you're hoping that your hashing algorithm would be good and give you a good distribution that you're not going to have those collisions often. So when you do, you're probably not searching a lot. So it probably much like the separate chaining gets away with, you know, traversing the linked list, open addressing probably gets away with having to traverse that array because there's not going to be that many collisions, or at least that's, that's the assumption. Right. Yeah. Assuming it, so, it's probably one of two things, right? Either assuming that the hashing algorithm is good enough, or that your data set isn't so large that you're going to run into those collisions more. Right? Is my guess. Yeah, because I mean, even if you, okay, even if you had a lot of elements in the hash, in the in the hash's internal array, at that point, um, assuming that there's a good distribution you're only going to be scanning, you know, a few items before you get to a space and you're going to be like, Oh, there actually wasn't anything there. So that, that key is available. If you, you know, you know, that, that's where like, uh, if you try to get that value, you're just going to get back a null or depending on whatever framework you're using at the time. Uh, however it, it decides to handle that type of situation. 
All right. Hey, so- you know, we, I don't think we've really talked about um, the, what, what this looks like for the programmer. So I love hashes and, and their ilk because of how easy it is to use for like a programmer. So in JavaScript, I, you know, I'm used to using it as an object. There's different ways to do that though. But I basically, I create my object and I throw the, the indexer. So the square brackets around it and give it some sort of key. So I could say, you know, Abigail is my key equals new person. And then I've created a new person and it's stored in what I think of as being the key of Abigail. And then when we tell the, the hash, hey, give me the object at Abigail, and it's going to go, it's going to run the hash on that, that word Abigail there on my key. And that's how it's going to figure out how to look up the actual person in memory that I stored. And it's pretty awesome. So if you've got something where you want to be able to just kind of shove stuff in and look it back, look it back up, then that's a, a great data structure. I've been doing the uh, advent of code uh, this year for 20, 2018. And one of the problems I just solved, uh, I ended up using a hash table. And the reason I went with a hash table over an array because I was storing numeric keys is because I thought the data might be sparse. And this is something we talked a little bit about arrays. Oh, if you've got uh, like a fixed or a known size, say like, um, you know, 1000, you could do an array with that. But if you know that you're only going to be using like, you know, a handful of indexes out of that thousand, then you're going to be pre-allocating a huge chunk of space in memory and only using, you know, 10% of it or, or some small number. But if you use a hash table, then you're only, re- you're only allocating the memory as you put the stuff in. And so memory wise, it's going to be really efficient and the insert and take out times, the uh, insert and look up times are uh, on average of one. So it's going to be just as fast as an array for those lookups on new numbers, but must much more memory efficient. Turned out I was wrong on that, by the way. It would have been much better to use an array in my case because it ended up not being sparse. So (laughs) that's what I get for (laughs) pre-optimization. Yeah, like like our previous conversation of like a list versus uh, array. Right. Yeah. Use use the list until you know that you shouldn't. Right. Exactly. Um, Okay. So so what are some other strategies? So the Wikipedia article has uh, other strategies that they listed for hash tables, but they didn't go into quite as much detail. But um, so I'll just quickly like say that some of the names like uh, cuckoo hashing, hopscotch hashing, Robin hood. And then this one was interesting to me, the two choice hashing, which kind of sounded like a rapper name. You know, that would be like my rap name. I'm, I'm two hash. I'm two choice hashing. <laughs> You know, be right next to two chains and what's up? <laughs> um, so, but yeah, so that one was kind of neat because like as the, as the name implies, there's actually, it uses two hashing functions. And so if during a write operation, uh, you, you find a location that is already in use, it's going to use the location that would, prov- the hashing functions location that would provide the fewest uh, objects already at that value. So hash it one way, then flip it down that and reverse it and hash it again and see which one looks better and just kind of go with that. It sounds, it sounds kind of awful from a developer. Like if you were the developer of that thing though, of that two choice wrapping hashing, uh, implementation, it does sound kind of awful to try to maintain that code because then you're like, I mean, just wrap your head around that for a moment. Like, Okay, I just put something into the into the hash's internal array. How do I know which hash function was used? Like just trying to keep track of that kind of thing. Like obviously they've solved the problem. Someone solved it, right? Because it is a real thing, but 
I would imagine it has extra storage needs behind the scenes, right? In order to map those things out. They've I, got a I hash table imagine. to sure, keep yeah. track of their hash table. <laughs> I feel like somebody came up with this at like the last second. It's like minutes to the deadline. They're like, oh, this is going too slow. And I tell you what, just just hash the, the stupid thing twice. That's right. And if, you know, if one of them doesn't have an item, just put it there. And then whenever we need to look it up, we'll just do it twice. It'll half the time that we need to go crazy and chasing down this crazy chain. Let's just go with it. And they tried it and it worked and they shipped. <laughs> and now they're Google. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and to be fair, when we said don't go writing your own hashing algorithms, you know, we say that if you're just, you know, writing some code, obviously if you've got a real use case for it, right? Like you're writing the next, you know, network layer topology type stuff that's got to be crazy fast and you're not finding anything that suits your needs. And then probably you will write your own, but we're saying on general day to day type stuff, you, if you find yourself writing your own hashing algorithm, you're probably doing something wrong, right? And it might be special cases where you know enough about your data set that you could kind of make an informed decision about that. Totally. And of course, if you were just wanting to learn about hash tables, like I'm really interested in how the heck they come up with the algorithm that works. Like this is not something I could do on my own. Like I, there's some math whiz out there who, who came up with this hashing strategy that was really good and smart about coming up with a good distribution. So I'd love to know what that is. So maybe one of these days I'll, I'll look it up and try to program it just like from an academic perspective. But I, this is not the kind of thing that you want to do on Friday afternoon before launch because, you know, you want to do that. Just use whatever's built into your language. Right. Agreed. So uh, we've kind of already hinted on this, but I, I, just to go ahead and throw it out there, like officially, you know, the, the complexity around hash tables and their usage. So on in terms of space complexity, the average is going to the average and the worst are just going to be O of N. So however many items you're trying to put into your hash table, there's your space complexity. Um, the insert, the search, searching the hash table, inserting into the hash table, and deleting from the hash table are, on average, an O of 1. Which is as good as it gets. Yeah. that that That's amazing. Um, and then the worst case is going to be an O of N operation. So... It's awful, but I mean, it could be worse. And this is one of those ones, like we mentioned, there's kind of an asterisk when you look up at a lot of times in the charts. Cause so often in, in Big O, we talk about the worst case scenario because it's kind of that limiting function deal. So that's kind of what Big O is, is designed for is to let you know, like, you know, worst case scenario. But in this case, it's so much more frequently the good case. Right. Whenever you do some sort of lookup, it's like they don't want to scare you. Like, listen, listen, just pretend, just. Just get it in your mind that it's O of 1. And then if you have a problem with it later, come back here and notice the asterisk and, and then look at it deeper. And, well, and you know something, just if you guys, I'm sure we've all seen situations where just hundreds of thousands of items have been crammed into a hash table and it doesn't perform faster. You're like, why? Because I, I would expect it to be really fast because this should be a direct lookup. It should be an O of 1 operation, right? And then – these underlying implementation details right here of when there's collisions and how those things are handled. Just imagine you're doing some sort of lookup or you're looking up many items in that thing and it's having to go to it, but then it's like, Oh no, now I got to scan the rest of the contents in here because there were multiple collisions. That's probably why you end up running into those things. So it is, it's nice to know these things behind the scenes that are, that are happening for you that you probably never even think about. 
Yeah. Or now that if you do have a, a slow performing hash table <clears throat> usage, maybe you have like some target to go after. It'll be like, well, huh? What, what is it? Maybe there's something about my data that I'm not getting the uniform distribution that I thought I should have been getting. But just to point out though, that like when we talk about the, you know, the best case or the average case, I'm sorry, uh, time complexity being an O of one versus the worst case being an O of N. I mean, O of N was like not far. Like O of one was a flat line and O of N was like just not terrible. Like slightly, you know, it was like maybe a three degree, four degree line. Like it wasn't a big line in comparison. I mean, we're not talking, it was, it was definitely still at the bottom of the yellow on like, if you were to go to big com, right? O of N is there at the bottom. So in your like quote bad cases, like it was the best of the bad. Right. I don't know. It, it still kind of stinks though. Like if you've got a, a algorithm that takes one second and then O of one with a thousand inputs, it's still one second. But in O of N, even though it's great, a size of one of 1000 is going to give you 1000 seconds. So it, I mean, it's a big yeah. difference. And you can notice if you ever had an algorithm that was like looking stuff up in arrays over and over and over again by searching through all of them. And you converted that thing to a hash table, and you're probably going to see really big delay. I mean, really big uh, improvement well, there. The point, but yeah, you're right. And it's not. It's definitely not as bad as the others. Yeah, that that's the point I was trying to get. I wanted to make was that yes, it could still be bad, but it's not like O of n factor, factorial. Well, you know, it's not a hockey stick. Is where I'm I'm going with that. Well, yeah. if if you just really want to boil it down to that big O cheat sheet, O of one is the best. O log n is the very next best, and then O of n is the next. So you're you're not doing bad, right? You're still you're barely out of the green. You're a little bit out of the green, mm-hmm. but but still, it's it's not a bad operation. So the fact that your worst case is O of n is still not terrible. But I mean, to Joe's point, should you find some kind of massive data set to where you have collisions ninety nine percent of the time, right? And you're using say like underneath the covers, unbeknownst to you, the separate chaining. Uh, resolution strategy is being used. And you're like, hey, why is my hash table performing so badly? You know, if you happen to notice, like, oh, my data happens to you just randomly be producing keys, you know, hashes that are all, you know, the same. That's why it's performing so badly, yeah. right? You could kind of like just make guesses because even if if you did happen to notice that it was um, producing that without looking at that. The implementation of the hash table, you'd be like, oh, they're probably using a separate chaining collision strategy behind the scenes. And that's why. Yep. Right. Now, who's actually going to go, you know, start hashing all of their, their own code, their own uh, data to see like, you know, what it's going to produce. I don't know. Maybe you're using, don't, don't judge me, man. (laughs) You do that. I'll be over here like uh, NPM (laughs) install. Right. (laughs) You know, hash two. Right. Exactly. You know what? I'm going to derail this for a second. I I want that never happens. Right. I want to say how much better things like NPM, and I'm even going to give a shout out to the Java community. Uh-oh, here we go. And Maven. Oh God. Is oh God. The Nougat. Why does Nougat suck so bad? Oh man. Like seriously, why does it? Jeez. I, I'm so angry at Nougat almost all the time because of this whole, it doesn't encapsulate its own dependencies well. And that, man, that makes me mad. NPM does it with JavaScript. Like how, how is how, it an NPM? Is it a nougat problem though, or an MS build problem? I don't Let's care. Be fair. What, I don't care what it is. I don't, I, I honestly, Are you talking about like where A depends on B, B depends on C, C depends on D, 
and A doesn't have an explicit reference to D, but yet it's needed? Well, that's one. Because that's, that's an MS build. Let's okay. be fair. That's one. Okay. But the one that really irks me is you – all right. So we're going to dive down here into the C-sharp here world for just a second. Let's do it. So I am using Log4Net 1.2 in my app, right? Let's say – but I pull in a dependency that's using Log4Net 1.1. Well, guess what? I can't use it because I have to have the same dependency that my dependency has. And that burns me up. Like, dude, Maven and Java work really well in this world. You can bundle up everything you need in your jar and it just works. Why can't we make that happen? Okay, two things. Number one is... Uh, technically you could solve that problem with binding in your apps config. You could change the version, like you could give a range for the, for the DLL binding and say let's like say anything breaking. from this range to this range. Okay. Breaking let's say that's, let's say that it's breaking. Number two way that you could solve this problem is as the publisher of that NuGet package, you could IL repack your dependencies in so that they come along for the ride. And they are baked into so your bake them in, so yeah. you're not actually including a dependency. But I still go back to the whole fact that almost everybody else has figured out this way to be able to bundle in your dependencies in a way that doesn't damage your own application. And it burns me up every time I face this with NuGet. Like it, it makes me so mad that I'm like, I'm not doing this in C sharp. I'm doing it in JavaScript. I don't care that I like C sharp better. I don't want to deal with this dependency entanglement nightmare, right? Like yeah, every time I deal with NuGet, it does seem like a bit of a headache. And when I'm used to using things like Node, it's you know there's it's a no brainer that I can just npm install anything in like two seconds and, and get it working. Now the the Node module folder is horrible. Oh, it's, it's huge a nightmare to look at it. It's massive. It's like 300 you know gigabytes or whatever for the tiniest little thing. But, but I mean, you know, that's crazy. But that's what uh, like good your stuff, tip though. Your tip last week or last episode, Joe, that uh, Jamie provided. I mean, that was the whole point of of even for NPM was trying to get around some of these problems where, you know, if you only built based off of the package's JSON file, that's kind of loosey-goosey, right. right? As to like what the versions could be, whereas the package lock, JSON isn't. That's specifically, here's the entire dependency graph, like uh, every version that was used, right? right. And that's where... While we're on this tangent, <laughs> like even if you do the IL repack that I that I mentioned as a way to get around it, that's where those kind of solutions can still irk me, right? Because I'm willing to understand like the challenges that NuGet has. In this build, I I kind of can't forgive for the like not including the dependency the thing, skipping the chaining dependencies. But yeah. then that that problem then carries forward or is replicated by and I don't know which. It's either you know the but by like IL repack, for example, where if if MS build didn't so dependency A or let's say app A depends on dependency B, depends on dependency C, and dependency C depends on dependency D. And MS build when it does that com- compilation, if app A isn't uh, explicitly using dependency D and nothing in its execution path is using dependency D, dependency D will not come along for the ride. And then you'll be missing. So reference. in your in your in your bin directory or your output of of the compilation process, you're not going to have that dependency there. Right? Well, 
you and I, especially, I know, have seen cases where, and it's well documented. Like you go search it on, like Stack Overflow has plenty of articles on this problem. Uh, where even though it thought that it didn't need it, it actually was needed. You know, in some scenarios, and you know, you'll get runtime errors that uh, you won't see. But I'll repack to its credit, I guess. Instead of making it a, a runtime error, you'll see it as a a you know build error because it'll. It's not smart enough to recognize that dependency that app A doesn't use certain things. And so if it sees that one of those random dependencies has a dependency, the next dependency, it'll keep walking that app's dependency chain, expecting all of those DLLs to be in there so that it can hack them all in together. And when it can't find D, it's like, oh, well, we're done. All right. Well, well, there's such uh, different cultures too. I, I just had to mention, like, when I'm working in front end, like, man, I'll require something in like a heartbeat. <laughs> like, don't even oh, I don't want to left pad this thing. Just, just require, just look it up. Like, nobody cares, you know, because it's the front end. For some reason, I guess maybe because uh, there's like this culture of kind of these things being small and like single, single pur- purpose and DLLs tend to be heavier. Man, when you're working on the back end and you want to bring something in you get, it's like, all right. Let's call, let's call the tribes together. Let's get the council, all the dev, you know, managers get together. You got to go there. You got to bring presents and you got to sweet talk them <laughs> and you got to, you got to set up a recurring meeting because it's probably going to take you a couple to actually get this thing added to the back to the project. And then when you finally get around, you finally everyone, you know, or 80% of the people agree. Yes. Let's bring this package in instead of rewriting it. Then you do it and then it breaks the build and you got to mess with it for the next 24 hours. That's so it funny. Works. It's so true too. Like you've got the Senate over here. You got <laughs> yes. the House of Republicans over here. You yep. got Congress. You've got, oh. you got veto power. See, all- I thought when you said the Senate, my mind immediately went to Star Wars. <laughs> And I was thinking of the like, like the Senate the within Star Wars. Oh gosh! Yeah. So I was picturing like that kind of room, you know, like you like go out on your little hover floating platform. Uh, yeah, your hover platform to you know make your speech about like we need this great library. 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 Yeah. You know. So yeah, man. I I apologize for derailing. I don't even something snapped in my head when you said something. And I was like, oh no, no I've, I've got to get. It was like you had a twitch, like you hadn't had your medication yet. Like a. It's gotta- one of those things, like where you fight it, you just like. At first, you're angry, and then you're confused, right? Like, why would anybody ever let this happen? And, and then, and then it's just. I don't. I think it's backwards, right? Like you're confused. Like, wait a minute, why is this broken? Uh, Yeah, this should work. (laughs) It might be many stages. Who? What DLL is that? I'm not using that. Like, there's no reference to that. Why is it complaining about that? So yeah, you definitely start out confused, and then when you realize what the problem is, then you're angry and you're super angry. You're like, what? And then you're like, you know what? I'm going over to Java. I may think it's way more explicit than I want it to be, but I'm about to change. You know, coding paths in my career. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> now you're talking emotionally. That is not a rational decision. <laughs> just coming over to JavaScript, man. Seriously, uh, if I want to uppercase a string, I just npm install uppercase. I don't even care that it's built into JavaScript, but I'm just going to get the package. And if it's mining some crypto coins in the background, then, you know, whatever. That's the price we pay. Someone will fix it eventually. Oh, that's so amazing. I'm going to assume that, that some of our, our Java brethren are, uh, you know, among us here are going to be upset. Yeah, yeah, they're already upset. Yeah, don't hate us. <laughs> we don't hate you. Day. We don't hate you. It's just, it's funny. There are definitely things that are way more polished and, and more better in the uh, Java world. Well, I was going to say, yeah, come to Microsoft Land. We got Link. Oh, that's so beautiful. That almost makes up for all of it. It oh, almost man. does. Well, I was going to say too. Like, I don't know why in my uh, 
my reaction to like that situation, like you would suddenly in this hypothetical situation turn into little John. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh man! And then when you do finally get it to build, I mean, he, he, little John comes back out and you're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're over there like horrible. high-fiving yourself in the corner and everyone else is still pissed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you broke the build all day and you're high-fiving yourself? Great. You're like, you don't know where I've been. <laughs> I got some of my little John impersonations apparently though. Yeah, the, yeah it, the, those are hard ones to do, man. He worked on that for years. All right. Let's get back to uh, hash tables and all the fun that they are. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> and so quickly, let's talk about like the pros of the hash table. Uh, the speed, number one, by far and away, the speed of the hash tables, uh, you know, the reads, ignoring collisions, you're generally going to consider that an O of one operation. Um, if there is a collision, the read write time can be reduced to N divided by K, where K is the size of the hash table, which can just be reduced to O of N. Don't you love big O notation? Just throw everything away. There should be like a whole, like <laughs> big O math. Like, it's basically drop all the constants, right? Like that's. Yeah. Oh, you had some operation in there. Yeah. Ah, don't worry about it. Nah. Details. Whatever. <laughs> N divided by K. Nah. All right. Uh, assuming a good hashing algorithm is used, it's usually going to be O of one, like we said. And uh, but this assumes that by the good performance of the hashing that a, a that by good the performance of the hashing algorithm has been considered. So to Joe's point, uh, if your hashing algorithm is going to take a second. And you have to put a thousand things in this hash table. That's not going to be a good ha- hashing algorithm. So, yeah, I mean, you can't blame the the idea of the hash table at that point because you have a bad performing uh, algorithm. So, even if you do have a slow algorithm, it might still be O of one, but it may be slower than the alternatives. And I think that's worth explaining, right? It's O of one because the lookup operation itself can go directly to it. But the hashing behind it is is ridiculously long and, yep. and tedious. So, yeah. All right. So, uh, to the cons of the of the hash table. So, depending on your language, um, I'm I'm looking at you, C sharp. The hash table type is loosely typed. Uh, we'll we'll cover. We'll come back to that in a moment. The cost of the hashing function can be more than just looping over the list, especially for few entries. So, you know, if you only have two items in your hash table, did you really need a hash table? Right? I mean, probably not. Maybe. Probably not. Um, Because the hash table entries are spread around, there is a poor locality of reference, which can trigger processor memory, uh, processor cache misses. So, you know, again, if you're trying to squeeze every bit of performance out, um, cache performance can also be poor or ineffective depending on the implementation, such as separate chaining. And, uh, the performance can degrade when there are many collisions, which, you know, we pretty much already covered that. All right. So when should you use a hash table? So, uh, now if we are talking about specific <laughs> language implementations of a hash table class or type, then, um, don't. At least not in C sharp. Like there's, you know, you should prefer the dictionary type over the hash table type. Um, Every time. And not in Java either. You should use the hash map. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, because um, yeah, it's strongly typed. And so the alternative is if you use the, this, that, the hash table, 
then what happens is you're going to get an object back and you're going to have to cast it. So you're losing the benefits of having a compiled language, right? There's no sort of checking around that. And, uh, you know, potentially you're doing something wrong or getting an error. So that kind of stinks. And if you're storing simple values, it's even worse because you're going to end up boxing them. So you're going to take these simple values that would take, say, 32 bits for an integer, and then you're going to stuff them in a 64-bit reference and throw them on the heap. And then now you're taking up whatever 32 times 3 is. Well, <laughs> not just six. taking them up. Now you've also got the garbage collection and everything else on top of it, right? Yeah. And it's totally unnecessary if you just use the stronger type version. Right. So if we're not talking about the – um language implement specific language implementations uh then when should you use the hash tables okay so anytime you need an associative array so you want by that i mean you want to have an array but you don't want to necessarily look up items in the array by their index you might want to be able to say like hey uh in this array of people i want to find the allen object right that's what i mean by the associative array um, there were other examples that were given too that I found that were like uh, database indexing or um, another good one too would be cache. If you wanted to build uh, your own cache, you could use a hash table behind the scenes so that when your user wants to uh, add something to the cache or look up something from the cache, you hash the value that they give you as the key, then go into that point in your hash tables you know, array and find it. And then sets was another option uh, when you might want to use these. Yeah, I think it's worth calling out cache specifically just because that, that's a very common use case for it. If you're doing like something, a REST API, like one common approach might be to get the REST call and you take those arguments and you kind of put them in one big string and say, have I seen this in the last 30 seconds or, or something like that? And then if you've seen that, if you've got that object in the hash table memory, then you can go ahead and return it without going and hitting a slower service. And so it's really common to use it in those type scenarios. And it's all about coming up with and managing those keys. Then on your end, in the background, this should be using a really fast, efficient data structure for storing that data. This episode is sponsored by Datadog. You've heard us tell you about Datadog. You know they're a software-as-a-service monitoring platform that provides developer and operation teams with a unified view of their infrastructure, apps, and logs. But did you know about these features? Like Watchdog. Watchdog automatically detects performance problems in your applications without any manual setup or configuration. And by continuously examining application performance data, it identifies anomalies like a sudden spike in your hit rate or something that could uh, otherwise have remained invisible. So once an anomaly is detected... Watchdog provides you with all the relevant information you need to get to the root cause faster. Things like stack traces, error messages, and related issues from the same time frame. Or what about trace search and analytics? Trace search and analytics allows you to explore, graph, and correlate application performance data using high cardinality attributes. You can search and filter request traces using key business and application attributes such as user IDs or host names or product SKUs so you can quickly pinpoint where performance issues are originating and who's being affected. Tight integration with data from logs and infrastructure metrics also lets you correlate these specific trace events to the performance of the underlying infrastructure so you can resolve the problem quickly. And don't forget about logging without limits. Logging without limits is a thing where you can cost-effectively process and archive all of your logs and then later decide on the fly which to index, visualize, and retain for analytics and Datadog. Now, you can collect every single log produced by your applications and infrastructure without having to decide ahead of time which logs will be the most valuable for monitoring, analytics, and troubleshooting. 
Datadog is offering our listeners a free 14-day trial with no credit card required. And as an added bonus for signing up and creating a dashboard, they'll send you a Datadog t-shirt. Head to www.datadog.com slash coding blocks to sign up today. All right. So it's that time of the show when we ask you, if you haven't already, please do go leave us a review. You know, we say that it puts a smile on our face and it totally does. And actually somebody left us a review that said they left the review to put a smile on our face because we put one on there. So, you know, that's awesome. I mean, wasn't that nice that, I, that, that put a smile on my face. Imagine that. So yeah, I mean, if, if you ever find yourself and you're in front of your keyboard or on your phone and you're bored and you're thinking, Hey, you know what? I meant to leave those guys a review. Please do. It makes our day and we really appreciate it. And it's a nice way to give back. So thanks. Yeah. And also too, you know, leaving it, we greatly appreciate the reviews, like Alan said, but, uh, you know, you could also spread the word, share coding blocks with a friend, tell, you know, let, uh, one of your coworkers know about the show, um, you know, expose more people to it. And it inevitably you're going to say, yeah, there's this podcast and somebody's going to look at you sideways and be like, what's a podcast. Yeah. And then you could explain to them, oh, it's really not that big of a deal. Right. So, so yeah, um, it, it's even a good icebreaker for people that haven't been introduced to the podcasting world. It's like TiVo for radio. That's Wait, right. what's TiVo? And then you can turn them on to serial and hardcore history and a bunch of other things that they'll love. So yeah. Wait, serial? Yeah, you could definitely like be the life of the party. You're like, oh God, here comes the podcast guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to tell us about coding blocks again. <laughs> the podcast guy. Uh, <laughs> I've been that guy. Uh, All right. Well, <clears throat> Whoa, excuse me. Yeah, you got to be ready to do this. You can't mess this part up. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't mess this up like my little John impersonation. <laughs> so this is, uh, time for my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. So in episode 94, we asked, what do you value most in a job? And your choices were pay. It's all about the Benjamins or tech stack. I need to remain interested or commute or the lack thereof. I mean, I love listening to coding blocks and all, but a new set of tires every month is ridiculous or location, location, location. It's just like real estate or team. I need to be surrounded by people better than me so I can grow or industry. I want the type of problems I solve to matter to me. Or benefits, I like to take off for the summer. And lastly, work-life balance. I have a life outside of the office. All right, I believe Joe went first, I think. So let's start with you, Alan. What do you think? Man, this one's tough because there's a lot of, like I'd say a lot of these, at least personally speak to me. I'm going to go with, for most people, pay. It's all about the Benjamins. Okay. I'm going to say 30, 35%. Okay. I like right. where your head's at. And for me, uh, I think that location is going to be the biggest factor, either wanting to work from home or having something where I, I, I'm going to guess that most people don't want to move unless there's plenty of Benjamins. But I'm going to say location at uh, 30%. You both are committed to your choices. Alan with pay at 35% and Joe with location at 30%. I have that right? That's correct. Drum roll, please. 
Craig, you're both wrong. We're both wrong, really. I'm super surprised, and I'm I'm curious to see like where you're going to come in on this, Alan, because you were super opinionated, and we're just like dying to spill your opinion on this at the time when we were doing episode 94, if you recall. But no work life balance, far and away, thirty percent. You know, everything else was kind of scattered among it. But yeah, it was it was clearly, you know, the one that walked away with it. That one I thought would be up there. I didn't think it'd win. And I wonder if that's because everybody's already paid well. <laughs> so now they're on to the yeah, other maybe, thing. Yeah, maybe we're in this show and you're in A tier, so you're already making the <laughs> making the bucks. So yeah, it's about that work life balance. So chances are if you're listening to this podcast, this two and a half hour podcast while you're on your downtime while you're commuting or washing the dishes or whatever, then uh yeah, chances are you're working too much. Yeah, it's uh I don't know, man. Like for me, commute's a big one. Right, living in in the Atlanta area and knowing that you can give half your life away to the uh, gods of the highway, so that is that one, what we're calling them now, the gods? Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah it, I, I honestly thought. Then I smite thee. What was number two? <laughs> so if work life balance was number one at thirty, you said. Yeah, I mean, then from there, tech stack was surprisingly number number two, two at twenty one percent. Wow. That's wow. that's shocking. Team, team was close though at twenty, so there really? wasn't there wasn't a far a big difference between those two, what and was and that one was like so hard for me because I'm like, really? Because how are you how do you judge the team unless unless you know because uh, they're already friends of yours, right? Or people that you've met or whatnot, and so you kind of already have an idea of who they are. Unless you're just making an assumption like, oh, it's Google, so I just assume they're going to be like you know a bunch of smart people, for example, that. You know, but otherwise it's like, well, how do you know the, 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 who the team is to make that, to use that as your, your determination? I don't know. I, I personally thought this was going to be a silly response, a silly survey. I thought far and away the, the winner will be pay. It'll be like 98% pay <laughs> and like two people are going to make a joke about something else. Right. right? But I, I was really surprised to see that, you know, Pay didn't rank as high. It honestly, you know what? And maybe this is just something about our audience is I'm wondering if a lot of it really is people are getting paid pretty well because they've taken the time to invest in their, in their skills by listening to podcasts or reading books or, or doing courses or just constantly improving. So that's, that's almost like, yeah, that's coming right now. I need to focus on, on what, what's, what else is important to me. That's, oh, you know. If you're in our Slack, then you can go to the salary survey channel and we've got a little survey there. So you can go ahead and you can already see what people put in there. You know, of course, it's all anonymous. So uh, you might be interested in that. Yeah. If you're not in there. What was the lowest though? I have to know. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, but I did want to like just finish up this one thought though. Along that line though, you kind of hit on something that maybe it's just our industry that, you know, maybe we're asking the wrong industry. So maybe people within our industry, these are the things that would matter and like work-life balance may, may rank higher. But if you were to go maybe across industries, then maybe pay would rank more, you know, you know, if the, if I guess what I'm saying is like if the industry was more general purpose or across all of the industries, then maybe pay would rank more higher or maybe I wouldn't be surprised. Right. Right. But uh, to your question, benefits was the last. And I think. That's what you would have said. That's what you were wanting to say last time, Alan. Am I wrong? 
Was uh, benefits not the? I don't think no. I think for me it was probably going to be either commute or pay. I, I was pretty sure it was going to be one of those two. Oh, really? I think I swore it was going to be benefits. Yeah, I mean the benefits thing is always. I, I don't think it's ever anything somebody's uh, like striving to get the best benefits. Although it could make or break the deal when they go to a particular spot, right? So I, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. So yeah, good to know. All right. Well, and by the way, you can see that whole pie chart by going to the uh, show notes and yeah. voting. <laughs> then you'll be able to see actually right after you vote. Episode 94. Is that right? Uh, no, this. Oh, for that one. Yeah. yeah, that was episode 94. Yep. Yeah, and all surveys that we do, once you take the survey, you see the results of it. So you don't have to wait so long to see the, the at least a few results. Although it's it's much funner to hear it. So Yeah, sure. All right. All right. So I was at Data Psycon last week and uh they had uh, obviously there were all kinds of amazing talks but there was one little thing that I was like oh this is going to be so fun i got to save this for the show so a little fun quick game that i wanted to play with you too just to talk about uh the magnitude of data so this comes from i'm not going to tell you the source yet cuz i know alan's already at the keyboard he's going to go looking for it i i, I would never what <laughs> I just saw him reach for his mouse. But uh, so if we talked about, if I were to ask you how much data is generated every minute, Ooh. all right? And this is as it relates to 2017. How much data was generated every minute? Let's talk about first, what would be a big one? Okay, here's a good one. Let's pick Amazon. How much money in sales does Amazon did Amazon make every minute for 2017? Golly. Oh, it's going to make you sick. 100 million. 100 million every minute. In sales. We're not talking about revenue. We're talking about or, sales. Or not, not, yeah. Jeff? Million a minute. Wow. Jeff Bezos would really like you guys, his numbers. Uh, it was $258,751.90. Okay. I, was, I way over blew this one. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You, you guys, I figured the costs you guys were overshot high. it by times by a multiple of four. So if that's going to be the data science con is shaking their head right now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you guys. Morons. If, if the rest of these are going to go like this, you're going to be depressed by every answer I give. So I'm just going to go ahead and throw that out there. All right. We're going to, we're going to shoot further down. Okay. 800 petabytes. Okay. No, sorry. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> How many tweets per minute did users send on Twitter? God. $400 per minute. <laughs> Wait, what was the question? <laughs> 750,000 tweets per minute. 750,000? Per minute. 1 million. <laughs> 456,000 tweets per minute went out across Twitter. I got wow, that's that is pretty crazy. That's a lot. Uh, let's, I understand tweets. I don't understand dollars. Yeah, there were. Here's a couple of interesting ones. Uh, what about how many spam emails do you think are sent? Were sent every minute of every day in 2017. Uh, Seven hundred fifty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> is that going to be your answer from now on? How many spam emails sent per minute? Per minute, yeah. Ten million. <laughs> no, actually, I'm going to say bigger. I'm going to say a hundred million per emails. Minute. Come on, spam dude. emails per okay. minute. Absolutely. 
I at least get a million a day. <laughs> well, I'm going to put it to you like this, Alan. I'm going to break your heart because he is way closer than you were. Really? Wow. Way, by orders of magnitude closer. It was 103,447,520 spam emails sent every minute of every day for the year 2017. Dude, that's ridiculous. How is the internet even uh, running? Because that server's <laughs> relaying that stuff. Oh, man. Let me put this into context for you. This is really going to make you feel depressed about the use of the internet. There were, for Google searches conducted, there were 3,607,080 Google searches for every minute of 2017. Wow. And it was a factor of... There's 100 million 30. more email spams being sent than there were Google searches. Good Lord. That's crazy, right? Wow. That's ridiculous. And let me tell you, if they use my definition of spam email, which is just about anything that wasn't sent from a human to a human, then it's... It's even higher. Way higher. <laughs> yeah. Man. So here's one that, that I didn't expect to see. How many weather... How many forecast requests do you think that the Weather Channel received? Ooh. Just for total for 2017? For every minute. We're doing every minute. Every Every one of these questions is going to be relative to a minute. Uh, 500,000. 500,000. Two mil. I gave you guys a hint by saying that I wasn't expecting this one. It was 18 million. Wow. And 55,555 requests every minute. Jeez, man. I got three devices on my desk on right now. Four that are all probably checking the weather right now. Right. All right. Let me, let me, I don't want to go through every one of these. So I'm going to like pull out a couple more. So I got three last ones that I want to say. All right. YouTube videos watched per minute. In 2017? Yep. Uh, watch per minute. Five million. Um, four hundred dollars. <laughs> well, one one million. Joe wins. Four hundred dollars was the correct answer. That's right. Yes. Uh, no, you're pretty close, Alan. Four point one million. Nice. Yeah. And that number is just wow. going up. Yeah. Sorry. Four hundred dollars is how much they pay out per year to uh, people who <laughs> post their videos there. <laughs> Uh, what about what about uh text messages sent? Hmm. 10, 10 million per minute? Mm-hmm. 10 mil. Oh, you're both going 10 million. Okay. I like it. 15 million text messages per minute. Wow. I'm rounding down cuz there was some more to that number. Right. Uh last one that I'll say, I'll, I'll include a link to this in the show notes, but the last one that I've got here is how much data did Americans use of internet data? Per minute or like total? No, this is every one of these is per minute for every day of 2017. What was the question? How much? How much internet data did Americans use every minute of every day of 2017? Uh, I don't. I don't know the numbers. Like two hundred fifty potter bytes, petabytes. 
Potter bites. No, I'm, I'm the one after that. Oh, the, the, Harry, the Harry Potter, Potter bites. Harry Potter bites. Uh, I'm going to go <laughs> with uh, 10 terabytes. <clears throat> okay, so they put the number in terms of gigabytes, and so that's how I'm going to read the number. It would be 2,657,700 gigabytes every minute of every day. That's what I said. <laughs> I know, Joe, but I, I couldn't give it to you like that. I had to take some of the steam away from you. Yeah, the I'm translation just... is a ma- magical. That's crazy, though. That's crazy. Right? Yeah, I thought I thought you guys might enjoy that a little bit. So, again, there'll be a, a link to that in the show notes. So, um, you know, the listeners can play along at home. Hey, hey, so you said that was 2 million gigabytes, right? Yes. That's 2 petabytes is what that is. I just did oh, yeah. Google Translate. So just in case you, the next one after it is not the uh, Harry Potter bite. It's the Pebabite. Never heard of it. So the Pebabite. Yeah. Cause I should have thought about that. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. So, yeah, any- so next time you're mad at your cable company or, you know, whoever you get in internet access, just remember what they're putting up with. Oh, you know, you're paying for that, man. You get all of it. Right. Oh yeah, I'm I'm, sh- I'm shilling. <laughs> They're sliding me them dollars under the table for, for repping. Uh, uh. All right, so we'll wrap this up by saying that today's survey will be: we're heading into the holiday season, so you got to start making some uh, important decisions here. Namely, how do you plan to spend your time off this holiday season? And your choices are spending time with the family. Because the holidays are all about the memories. Or, I'm not avoiding the family. I'm building my next great project. Or, escaping the family and the keyboard. Or lastly, wait, what time off? You, you, you have, uh, have you guys got in your minds what the answers are going to be? You can't ever do that. No, we're not gonna. We're not gonna tell it. Just wondering. All right. Well, I know my family's not listening, so <laughs> I feel like it's okay for me to say that I plan on spending a lot of time with my computer because the computer's always listening. By the way, so never you should never talk bad about it. That's right. Hey, uh, you guys want to hear a roof joke? Okay, the first one's on the house. Oh god! Oh, oh yeah, that's right. There were some jokes that, yeah. that, that we had too. That was that was really awful. That's great. Well, <laughs> what do you call a pile of kittens? Perfection. A meowton. <laughs> oh boy! Uh, here's one. Why are teddy bears never hungry? Because they're always stuffed. Oh boy. <laughs> All right, well, in the interest of being done before three hours this episode, <laughs> move along. <laughs> These are ones that you can share with your family. They're safe. Uh. This episode is brought to you by Manning. Now, I just purchased the physical book Kafka in Action from Manning.com, which is really nice because it also lets me access the ebook immediately. And I saved 18 bucks because I used the code COD. B-L-O-C-K-40. And best of both worlds because I get the physical and the digital. But they don't just have books. I also recently watched, again, Zach Braddy's React in Motion course, which is really great. And he's a really funny and smart guy. So that, that was really awesome. And they have this really cool feature that I don't think I've seen anywhere else 
where as you're watching the video, it actually, uh, you can highlight the text so you can see the words as you're listening and watching what's going on on the screen there. And it works even if you speed up the video, which is something I definitely do. Manning is running a special promotion this December. The countdown to 2019 will run on manning.com all the way through the end of December. Answer just a single question every day and you'll be in the running to win free ebooks, videos, and even a whole year's worth of new releases. Plus, every week, everyone will get to enjoy massive discounts on Manning products. All you need is to sign up on Manning's deal of the day at manning.com slash mail dash preferences and you're good to go. Again, that's www.manning.com slash mail dash preferences to sign up. And be like Joe. While you're at manning.com, take a moment, shop around, find the next great book that you want to read and use the code CODBLOCK. 40 to save 40%. All right. So now we're going to talk about dictionaries. And uh, much like the hash tables, um, actually, they're pretty much the same thing as hash tables. The main differentiator being that hash tables, the, the definition and the Wikipedia computer science definition of the hash table data structure, the dictionary holds key value pairs and those values are untyped. So a dictionary is the same thing, except we know what type it is. And so there are a couple little shortcuts that we can take because we know the size of that uh, ahead of time. And uh, like we mentioned earlier, when we talked about hash tables and C sharp and Java, there's no good reason that I'm aware of to use one of those untyped data structures when you have a strongly typed option available. If you're working in something like JavaScript, you don't really have this sort of differentiation. It doesn't... Um, Makes sense because it's a, a weekly type language, but in something like a C sharp or, um, you know, I don't know what C plus plus has available here, but anything like that, you're going to want to use that strongly typed option. If you can not, if you can, if you can get away with it and you pretty much always can, I don't think I've ever used a hash table in C sharp. What about you ever? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Back in the uh, C sharp, I think it was before two oh, days. Yeah, they didn't have dictionaries. They didn't have the typed ones. So all you had were hash tables back in the day. Yeah, and you just cast it on the way out? Yep. Yeah, that stinks. Yeah, and so um, they even look really similar, you know, and in, C- in C-sharp you would do like a hash table, my, you know, or var, my thing equals new hash table, no types there. Dictionary, we've got generics, which we mentioned. And if you're not familiar with generics, basically you've got these cool little angle brackets uh, where you specify the types. So you say a dictionary and my key is, say, an integer and my value is a string. And you can change those items in the brackets. So it's the same class underneath, it's dictionary but you're changing the uh, strongly typed arguments that can go inside of it. So we could say a dictionary with a string is the key and a person is the, uh, is the value. And you can get even crazier. You don't have to use primitives for that first type. You could say my dictionary has keys of a person and the values are strings. So kind of interesting. I don't think I've ever used a complex object as a key before. I don't know. Is that? Well, I mean, would you call a string a complex object though? Uh, no, I mean, it's not a primitive, so I guess, I guess it is. I definitely use strings there. I was just trying to think like a customer object or something like that. I think I have, I, I'm pretty sure I have, uh, I can't think off the top of my head why, but tuples count something like that is kind of where, um, I'm thinking, but yeah, 
if you had something like a customer object or an order object, right? Then, then maybe yeah. you had something that you're trying to associate with it in, in your dictionary. So maybe if I've got like a some sort of code that takes in a bunch of customers and it counts up the number of orders, then I might have a hash table. And as I loop through the orders, I might say, okay, this customer, if I've seen him before, just go ahead and add to the number of orders. If I haven't seen him, go ahead and initialize that spot in that, the dictionary with a value of one for that order. And so as I loop through the orders at the end, I'll end up with something that I can say, hey, dictionary at uh, customer Abigail. They have three orders. That's going to be a fast lookup, which is really nice. And so in that case, I guess it is nice to be able to use that complex object. So I can just say, just, just take the whole customer object. And then that way I don't have to have like a separate data structure where I say, okay, the, the dictionary has, uh, the string Abigail that uniquely identifies as customer. Then I go over to some other, uh, dictionary and then <laughs> look up the, uh, object based on the key of Abigail there again. So that would be pretty awkward. So I guess it's really nice. I've just never really thought to do that. So I'm, I'm kind of curious in, cause the way, um, you know, you started with like the hash table versus the dictionary, right? And it was about like the specific implementation though, like specifically in like a C sharp implementation, right? Where like, uh, hash tables, you know, are based on object and dictionary are based on generics, right? But what about, um, well, I mean, for example, in the the imposter's handbook, right? Like he says, the, the specific difference was that the dictionary—I don't know how—but uh, is able to guarantee it's able to guarantee that it's going to have a unique index. Each item is going to have a unique index, so therefore, it's O of one. That was the the yeah. performance gain of the dictionary over the hash table. So I can tell you a little bit about that. Um, from what I've read, specifically in C sharp, that is the case. And uh, I'm not too well versed in the whole, you know, underlying implementation, but I do know that underneath the covers, there are differences with these two data structures. So Wikipedia definition wise, the only difference between a dictionary and a hash table is that a dictionary is a strong type and you should use it. Now, implementation wise, if you look under the hood in the uh, CLR uh, for C sharp, then uh, what, or you just read about it, that's the way to really do it. We'll have some links there. Is that the hash tables? That's the the untyped versions. They use a rehashing scheme, and so we kind of talked about a couple of those earlier, where it basically says, "Okay, the spot's full. Let me try rehashing it and find another spot, and I keep doing that until I find an open spot, and I plunk my item in." And the dictionary uses chaining, which is like the linkless idea, where we say, "Okay, we've already come to this bucket before. Let's go ahead and chain the items." However. Under the covers, C sharp for whatever reason, I've, I've never really found a good reason why they did this, but in the, the way they implemented their hash table, they made certain to have an underlying data structure that had one bucket for every item in your hash table. And so they end up, um, more or less guaranteeing that you always have a short number of items in that list. Does that make sense? So if you have 10 items in your hash table, you've got 10 buckets. If you have 1,000, then they give you 1,000 buckets and they hash your uh, key down to one of those X number of buckets. And so it keeps the ratio really good or close to one, I guess. So the number of available buckets is always equal to the number of items that you're storing. Hmm. I I mean, where I was kind of getting like tripped up mentally in, in my own head was just that in that 
the book that we referenced, the Imposter's Handbook, that there wasn't a lot of detail about that implementation of it. So I was like, well, that that's a bold claim. Like that it, I mean, I'm not saying that it's wrong, but you know, that it, that the dictionary has a unique key for accessing any given value, like that it's, that you're not, according to the book, there's not going to be a collision in the dictionary. So conversations about like chaining, separate chaining or open addressing or rehashing are moot because there's not going to be a collision. According so what to I book. read that, was basically uh, that the, the length of the list that it uses underneath uh, that it uses to store the, the, um, the collisions is never going to exceed the bucket size because the buckets are always guaranteed to have the same number of buckets as you have elements. So it ends up basically keeping a good ratio a uh, load factor. I think they called it of uh, nodes to buckets that ends up, uh, you know, I, Matthew, Matthew, hand wavy stuff ends up keeping the uh, ratio really low. And so you can never have more items in the way. Am I saying this right? You can never have a longer list than you have buckets. Hmm. So, and, and I'm going to do a terrible job of explaining this because uh, it's, it was way over my head and very complicated, but that's kind of the secret there of like how they end up guaranteeing performance for the dictionary is they basically have a, a special socialized algorithm where they uh, keep a good ratio of the length of the list and the number of buckets. But as for how they do that, that's way over my head. So here's something interesting yeah, on like- Stack Overflow about the collisions with dictionaries and the fact that how they're handled. Basically, it's got it uses Git hash code. So <clears throat> the answer is basically saying, you know, don't assume that whatever – you could even do like an IL peak on these type of things and look at what the implementation is. But don't think that that's what it's always going to be, right? Like they could change it in the next version of .NET, how they implement it. But – <clears throat> they're actually saying that if you have an object that's being put in there, the get hash code method must return the same value for the lifetime of the object, right? So that's basically how they're ensuring that, that these things go to the right place. So the equals and the get hash codes are, are the important parts of this. And so when a collision happens, we store you know, more than one element in the bucket, which affects the time we need to look it up because we now we need to traverse this linked list in order to find our item. Now, in order to make that look up fast, they keep the ratio of the number of the items in the list and the number of the buckets in the container low. That's the magical mathy part that I just don't understand. I've looked at the algorithm a couple of times and read a couple of articles and I don't understand why that ratio is important or why it guarantees things that are fast, but uh, I did not see anything that said that you wouldn't have a list. Like, in fact, I did read a lot about this special kind of load factor that definitely refers to the length of the list in comparison to the buckets. Wait, so what we were the links, nodes though. again in that? So I definitely. What were the nodes again? You had the nodes and the buckets. It was a ratio of the nodes to the buckets, but what were the uh, nodes? Load factor. The node the, is the load factor? The load factor. Well, the load factor is the ratio of the n- nodes to buckets. And I'm asking, the, it's the, the ratio of the length of the list to the number of buckets. Oh, okay. So if you want a one-to-one, right, is what you want. I got you. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> what Alan's saying. Either that or you want it to be uniform is what we're saying. So if every... 
if there if it was like going back to the hash table definition that I gave earlier, right? Like if the underlying structure was an array, then at each index in that array, you want it to be a uniform thing that are in each of those index. So each one of those indexes is a bucket, right? And if it was like a separate chaining, then you have a linked list of buckets per index in that array, right? So you want the same number of buckets being pointed to by each index in the array so that the, so that it's balanced, right? So the load factor should be, uh, Close to one. Right. And what I read is that the, the way that they kind of manage it and the way that they do the chaining is set up is so that they add a new bucket every time you get a new item. And they do this in order to keep that ratio positive. As to how they guarantee things get split up correctly, I, I just don't – I plain flat out don't get it. I don't understand what adding more buckets has to do with making things faster other than it improves this load factor number because the number of the buckets is now getting higher as the potential list of the – uh, the length of the list is getting higher. So it keeps that ratio really, uh, I guess at worst one, but I don't understand why that's desirable. Uh, uh we'll, we'll have some links in the show though. I mean, I don't yeah. think it's something we're going to figure out cause it, it's definitely uh, pretty hairy in there. There are some really nice, uh, articles on it. And if you understand it, Chumac 84, I'm looking at you could definitely use your help on trying to figure out why, because <laughs> what I'm thinking is, uh, there's a, a decision that Microsoft made here and said so we've got hash tables over here and dictionaries and we're choosing to implement dictionaries, the one that came out later, differently. So either that's because they figure out that chaining is actually better, but they didn't want to change the original implementation for backwards compatibility reasons. Or they said, you know what, because maps are sorry, the dictionaries are strongly typed, we can do a little bit of extra mojo that helps us balance things better and you know, maybe allocate stuff in a different way. Like maybe that's why they can create those buckets of a uniform size and know what it's going to be like. I don't know the answer to that. That's just me speculating. I never did find authoritative sources that, hey, dictionary does it differently because it, it's better. I mean, and they could. I am curious though, because like one of these has to be wrong, right? Like, you know, because that going back to the book, it was saying that the, it says the dictionary is exactly like a hash table, except it has a unique key for accessing a given value. And so the collisions are not something you have to worry about with a dictionary. Right. But yet, you know, to your point, like the, the documentation from Microsoft says, you know, it talks about employing alternate collision resolution strategies. And even I questioned, like, how could you guarantee a unique key? Right. Like, how's, how does that, how could that possibly work? So my, my inclination is to think like, well, I guess the handbook might be wrong about that part or maybe or maybe I'm maybe I'm misunderstanding that part. But then the um but then on the the other little, you know, I got like a little devil on each shoulder, right? And so the other one was saying like, well, I mean, when Microsoft decided in uh .net 2.0 to create the dictionary class, they could have just said, well, we already used the hash table class name. So we already have a class named hash table and we want to have something very similar to it. So I guess we'll call it dictionary, but maybe they really implemented a hash table behind the scenes. You know what I'm saying? Just similar to how like in Java, they started out with the hash table and then they decided, I don't remember the version to uh, create a better, a better version of it. And they call it the hash map. Right. Well, I guess thinking out loud a little bit though, if you add keys, like if you, if you knew up a dictionary and you try and add a duplicate key, if it's a number, it'll yell at you, right? Like it's like, no, you can't do that. 
if it's an object though, it would have to rely on the get hash code. So I don't know. Maybe you don't have collisions for primitive type keys. I, I, I'm not sure. I, did you, did you I see mean, the anything? Computer sciencey though definition. Well, if we're taking the way, the way it's written here in the, in the handbook as the quote computer sciencey way, right? Where there's not a collision. Right. I mean, then it's not. Yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah, I got, I'm taking this thing know. at face value, but maybe that part is not. Yeah. I mean, looking at the Microsoft docs, it doesn't sound like, and I mean, I don't know. But I don't know how to languages. make that. I'm, I'm not trying to decide like what, how to, how, what do I make of that? Are they talking about specifically from the name of their class, right? And how they implemented their class? Or are they talking about like, here's how a, the computer science definition of a dictionary. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so my takeaway is that, you know, the Microsoft uh, documentation like clearly says like, hey, we do chaining for dictionaries and we do rehashing for for the uh, the hashes. So, you know, everything I know about chaining says that it's using a linked list underneath. So maybe they're just getting a little loosey-goosey about what they define it to be a collision. Like maybe they're saying it's not a collision because no matter what, you're always getting an, a pointer to a linked list back. And so you don't really know if you're colliding or not. You basically get a pointer and you throw it on there. And so when you go to look stuff up, then I, you know, I, I, I'm speculating again, but I don't, I don't really know why there would be a discrepancy between the book and the documentation, but I have no reason to think that the documentation is wrong. Like there's several articles and stuff that I read specifically on that uh, keeping of the list. Yep. So I don't know, but it's, it's really interesting. I think like any language that you use, like if you take like a, a hard look at the data structures, like even ones you think, you know, like arrays, for example, you're going to find some really interesting stuff underneath the covers. Might I point you to float? Yep. Float. And, uh, you know, like uh, JavaScript has objects, but they're basically like hash tables. So, you know, that's something or, or um, also referred to as associated arrays. Do you guys see anything about uh, associative arrays and how they differ or are the same? Is it just a, a synonym for hash? I think they're a synonym because actually when I searched for just, you know, if you go to associative array on wiki, so ian.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash associative underscore array data or the dictionary type redirects there, um, associative container redirects there, map redirects there. So there's, there's several other terms that are very much in line with what we're talking about, right? So an associative array slash dictionary, basically the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the to the handbook for a moment, you know, we've had all this conversation about arrays in JavaScript, right? And things like that. And it was actually saying like, okay, well, now that you know about this, actually arrays under the covers are just a dictionary in JavaScript. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Until it's not. Until it's not. Yeah. And then it's yeah, an object which catches like an associative array, which is a dictionary. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, as for the pros, it's basically the same as the hash table, except in static languages, you can be a little bit more efficient because there's no boxing necessary. Uh, we, we did an episode way back on boxing, episode two. Uh, so operations are safer and uh, the errors are uh, caught at compile time. And perhaps maybe there are some performance gains to be had because you know presumably the size of the objects that you're storing as keys and uh, also as values. So maybe there's something there, although I don't have an authoritative source on that. Uh, cons are the same as the hash two, and uh, there's something about a class resolution strategy that I don't know about. 
<laughs> the, uh, who put that in there? Was that you, Outlaw? The the class resolution strategy? What? Yeah. I didn't. Okay. Um, That was some sort of... Maybe that was supposed to be like different conflict or uh, collision resolution strategies Don't and know. class got written instead. I think maybe we had a collision on the Google Docs <laughs> document and uh, we have, have an errant line posted here. It's moving right along. Yes. <laughs> uh, when to use it's basically the same as hash table so whenever you need a hash like data structure but you want that type safety and you're working in a language that has it you need those fast inserts those fast deletes fast lookups and another uh, case I mentioned there was like if you have sparse data so you don't necessarily want to pre-allocate the whole universe of what you might use if you know you're only going to be using a small percentage and this is a really memory and efficient data structure that's still going to give you fast random access yeah, I mean, kind of going back to my summary of the hash table, though, like when to use the dictionary is like always because yeah. always, yeah. you know you you should you should prefer the dictionary over the hash table would be my opinion, at least in like a language like C sharp, for example. And one thing I don't think we touched on earlier is that hashes and dictionaries don't generally support ordering. So if you add the keys Abigail, Alan, and Brad, and then you uh, and Outlaw. Don't leave you out. And then you say, okay, um, get me the keys loop over. I might get outlaw first and then Brad and then Abigail and then Alan. There's no t- type of guarantee built into that data structure definition on what you're going to get returned. Now, some languages like uh, in particular C sharp has like ordered dictionaries and I ordered dictionary interface, in which case they basically end up storing a, a like a, some sort of list or array data structure that keeps those things in order that you sort them or that you insert them in so they can return those to you. But that's going to be a specialized form of this, this data structure. But I just wanted to call it out just to kind of highlight the fact that there are a lot of variants that you might find in different languages or for very specific, specific uh, purposes that are going to be similar to a, a hash table or a dictionary are going to be just a little bit different for whatever reason. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I have a summary here of like the, the dictionary versus the hash table as it relates to C sharp. And, you know, much like Joe already said, you know, the dictionaries are strongly typed, whereas the hash tables aren't. So I've got an example of how you could get yourself into trouble with the, uh, hash table by mixing those types and uh in hash table it would be perfectly valid code well it would it would compile it could work but whether or not you know the validity of it would be what you actually want we could uh argue (laughs) but um yeah so the the dictionaries in c sharp are much like uh the java hash table where uh you would have the key and value types, you know, as generics. Hey, I just had a thought. What if you were trying to truly just store a collection of random things, you know, doesn't, you didn't care oh. about strongly typed. That's a good point. That's a good time that you might use the hash table over the dictionary. Oh yeah, sure. Right. So where you want to have point. mix it kind of like in the last, maybe was it the last episode where I'd mentioned where you might have the array of pointers and each pointer pointed to something different. Yeah. Something like that. Exactly. So a hash table might work there really well. Yeah. An example I like there is like if you have an array and you want to uh, say, uh, get the unique items out of it. One strategy for doing that is to loop through that array and throw those, uh, those items into a hash table. And whenever there's a collision or rather you try to store the same key twice, 
then you might say, okay, this item's been duplicated, either kick it out or, you know, do something special with it. But in that case, all you really care about are the keys. So you're throwing this thing into a hash table or a dictionary, but the value is what? Zero? Is it true? Is it, it doesn't matter because all you care about are the keys. So that's kind of an interesting case there. Yep. Um, here was another, just going back to this, uh, Java versus C sharp, the dictionary and C sharp versus the hash table in Java, both of them being typed. It was kind of curious that in Java, the hash table actually extends dictionary. Well, it's hash map, right? In Java? No, 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 wait. I'm not talking hash about hash table. map. I'm okay. talking about hash table. Extends if you look dictionary. at the class, you want to get confusing now, right? Cause our it's whole backwards. build up here is we'd used hash table to build up to our understanding of what dictionary is, but in Java, hash table extends dictionary. So you're like, wait, oh, yeah, I just I just tweeted at Larry Ellison. I said, yo. What's up with what this? What gives Wikipedia says the dictionary comes after. <laughs> <laughs> the dictionary is strongly typed. I so why are you going to... coding blocks on that. Uh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> All right. Send your tweets to at Larry Ellison at... Yeah, it's actually <laughs> up on the Oracle doc, so you're absolutely right. Yeah. Java, now, the dictionary extends object, and the hash table extends dictionary. To your point... Yes, you should in Java prefer hash map over uh, hash table. And I forget why there was like some performance op- optimization um, that was made. I'm not enough in the Java world to be able to like speak to that with uh, any kind of authority. But uh, last point I wanted to add here, though, in this hash table versus dictionary kind of wrap up is that the JavaScript object we talked about uh, already could be used like a dictionary. You can use it like an associative array. Yep. And I do many, many times. We all do. Especially yeah. for caching. We abuse yeah, it. all the time. Would you consider that an abuse of JavaScript? No, nah, that's, that's a good use nah, of that's JavaScript. that's what we do. That's, that's the appropriate use of JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> the appropriate so, uh, use yeah, of JavaScript is to talked- abuse it. That's right. Uh, last episode, we talked about ar- arrays and similars. You know, like, I'm not going to be implementing my own array, but for linked lists, like I, I don't have a problem implementing my own version of a linked list over using like C sharp's built in one. Now that I know about the built in one, I'll probably use it, but it doesn't bother me to think about somebody recreating a linked list or even a stack. Like you can really easily make your own stack. So if you don't use the built in one, fine. In JavaScript, fine. Just use an array and, you know, push, pop, whatever. You've got a stack there. Good enough. However, <laughs> Hash table is one that I will not be writing on my own because no. I want that really good distribution of those keys. And that's not something I'm confident in my abilities to do without spending a lot of time researching something that I'm really not interested in knowing that much about. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we've got tons and tons of resources that we'll link to here in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we've got a lot. And, yep. and with that, it is time for my favorite part of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right, and I'll start us off. Um, we have a Slack. We talk about all the time. You can go to codingblocks.net slash Slack, and you can send yourself an invoice and, 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 and hop on in this there. It's my favorite. a lot of fun. That's right. <laughs> One thing I'll tell you, though, is because we have a lot of people, a lot of uh, active oh. conversations going on, we uh, we have our data trunc- truncated by Slack all the time. So you're, you'll see a lot of channels that sometimes are just empty. And so you might join an empty channel and think it's dead, but really it was really active two weeks ago and, you know, just uh, three days have gone by and the Slack uh, Lingoliers have eaten it. So one of those channels <laughs> that sometimes goes dormant. 
Yeah, you like that, Langoliers? Yeah, okay, Langoliers. I thought I thought you yeah. mispronounced it or pronounced it some other way. I'm like, wait a minute, no, I thought it was pronounced Langoliers. Uh, so have I, I been it. saying I it wrong it. this whole time? <laughs> Stephen King. He still hasn't answered my tweet. Anyway. <laughs> So we have these channels that sometimes look dormant, but sometimes they wake up with a passion. And one of those is hashtag pet dash pictures. It's lit right now. So (laughs) Jacob started the fire. He posted a picture of his pupper laying on his back. Arlene sent. uh, (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Hold on. Sorry. I started watching it. Uh, Arlene posted a picture of a cat fetching a fork. Which is ridiculously cute as it sounds. Uh, Crittner had his cat on tram- trampoline. Anyway, it just went on and on and on. So the real tip is uh, you should join the Slack. And specifically, you should join that Pet Pictures channel because it's lit right now. It's awesome. There's so many cute animals in there that I'm dying. But th- so far, they're only cats and dogs. And I know you out there, dear listener, someone has a cute lizard or a squirrel or something. <laughs> and I want to see it and think or about petting it while I'm working. Because we all need that positivity this time of year. But wait, wait, Logan posted a picture of a dog that looks very angry. (laughs) That was the best picture he could get of it. It's an all black dog. So he's talking about uh, how I love this channel. He's talking about how it's hard to get a good picture of it. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Look at the teeth on that dog. Yeah. It doesn't look happy. It looks kind of like your cat. About the man's dog. Come on. I'm not talking smack. It just looks really unhappy. You need to pet your dog, Logan. Pet your dog. (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go warn them in the uh, pet pictures channel about this episode coming out. (laughs) Like Logan, listen, your dog comes up. All right. I'm sorry to say. I guess. uh, Am I next? Yeah, I'm next. All right. So. I don't know how I've been on the interwebs as long as I have and been as interested in big data as I have. As a matter of fact, we got, I got a question or we all got a question. I think I'm the only person that responded that was, you know, what, what are your current interests? You know, like I, we know we hear that you're C sharp guys or whatever. And so I posted some of my interests up there and a lot of them revolve around this whole big data and just data in general. Right. I'd never heard of Grafana. You guys. Sounds familiar. A little bit, um, just because I was looking at um, the search talk I did a while back. That was a really good example of um, visualizations based on like t- time series type stuff. And so I know that uh, it goes hand in hand with uh, Prometheus is the only time I've ever really seen it. Used. Yeah. Yeah. So this thing is, it's awesome. It's an open source package that you can hook up to up to 51 different types of data sources. 51. That's like that a lot. Nuts. Yeah. And you can literally just build dashboards on the fly. So if you've got some time series data or something, you want to be able to visualize it, hook this thing up to, you know, your Kafka or your Elasticsearch or whatever you want. Like he said, Prometheus, um, CloudWatch, uh, you know, probably any Azure alert type things. And you can actually drag a panel up there, drag a chart up there, hook it up, tell it what the columns are and boom. You have this thing that you can go look at, and I believe it's even got alerts on it. I can't remember. But, yeah, totally. This thing's really cool, and it looks like a really quick way to be able to start visualizing any kind of big data or even even just data that you have access to. So check yeah. that one out. Should we answer now about the uh, things we're interested in or why not? I say you put the post up on the page. Um, I don't remember where I put it, though. I don't remember which episode that was. But you can, yeah. I mean, you guys want to do it real quick, what you're interested in thing, for Mike gets to his uh, tip. Is it fast? Is it fast? 
How many tips yeah. you, how many, how many things are you interested in? Uh, I mean, like Python, data science, JavaScript, machine learning. Okay. Like those kind of topics. I mean, topics we've talked about. They're, yep. they, should, they shouldn't shock you. Yep. No. DevOps. Yep. What about you, Joe? I don't understand the question. Is that what we're interested in? Yeah. yeah. The, the types of things that you're currently like hot on learning about or, oh. or just. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ah, I know that. All right. I we'll totally t- know that. Well, tell us. <laughs> oh, he has to tell us? <laughs> no, hold on. I'm thinking. No, uh, no, absolutely. Um, I am very super interested in, I really want to focus in 2019 on two things. Uh, search engines. So Elasticsearch, Search, um, Algolia, stuff like that. I think you build a lot of really cool user experiences with it. And the Jamstack, which we're going to be talking to you uh, about really soon here. I'm really interested in Jamstack. And I'm worried about my little kind of middleware island shrinking year after year. And I'm deciding to join them rather than be beaten by them. So run in all the things. Really? Jamstack? I, I Jamstack swear I thought amazing. you were just messing with me when you said that previously. No, man. Did That's you my think profile he was dev you? too. Man, I've been changing everywhere. The very first time he, he mentioned something about it, I assumed it was a reference to uh, Dance to Die's uh, jam article where he had referred to Joe Allen Michael as jam. <laughs> jam. Yeah. So yeah, I assumed that Jamstack was something article. like that. Dance that I hooks up. Yeah. So so you're totally on board with that. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Jamstack and search. All right then. Software for humans. That's me. All right. All right. So my tip of the week comes to us from Angry Zoot. Thank you, Angry Zoot. Is to add emojis to your file, or oh my god, if you use this in your code <laughs> in Visual Studio Code by using window plus the semicolon and it'll bring up a little window that you could like select the emoji you want to use. So you could say var uh, foobar equals and then put a smiley face in it. Oh, that's amazing. Or worse, you could do var smiley face emoji equals foobar. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. In which case I'm going to be like, why would you do this in your code? But you can do this in Visual Studio Code without any add-ons without any extensions, plugins, whatnot. Zoot, you're awesome. Yeah. Uh, or all unless, my variables. Or maybe you're not, because if Alan starts <laughs> u- using this to name his variables, I'm going to be looking at like, wait, smiley play, smiley face plus frown face equals me face. Oh, that's amazing, right? Smiley plus smiley equals super smiley. Oh, dude, this is going to be great. If smiley greater than zero. Like, what? Yeah. I mean, uh, really though, I am so on board with emojis everywhere, and it's Dance to Die is actually the reason he made those uh, those um, ticket templates for QIT, where it would say like you know steps to reproduce or environment, you know, like that sort of thing. But he used emojis, and it really broke it up visually, and so you could kind of look at this what would otherwise be kind of a blob of text and see like okay, there's three parts to this, and you know here's some visual indicators as to their meaning. And so now I see him everywhere. I'm MVP uh, uh, Nicholas. Um, he has a, a his advent of code. Uh, code <laughs> up on GitHub, and he's got a couple stars there that represent the kinds of problems because you're rewarded with stars, and it just looks really nice. And so when you go to a page of GitHub that's so text heavy, and you're so used to seeing it, and all of a sudden you see these cute little pictures that kind of like divide up the thing that you're looking into since collaborations. Like suddenly, emojis aren't so crazy. That's really cool. Uh, I want to see where you're talking about. Where's the Where's the QIT one with the emojis? You have a link? Uh, just go create an issue. So if you go to uh, github.com slash codingblock slash podcast dash app and create a new issue, you'll see when you select the issue type that it gives you a template 
that asks you to fill in different things when you create the ticket. I want to create a new issue. Yeah, and Dance to Die, man, he is he is the emoji master for sure. Oh, man, he wants me to log in? What's that about? Oh. <laughs> You're not always logged into GitHub? Come on. Yeah, man. Oh, I still got to open pull request there. Dude. All right. Well, so very coolness. Thank you. All right. Well, with that, uh, hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hash Tables versus Dictionaries. Be sure to subscribe to us uh, in case if a friend happened to uh, let you borrow their device to listen to this or if they sent you a link and pointed you to the right place. But, uh, you know, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes to share more using your favorite podcast app. You can uh, leave us a review if you haven't already. Like Alan discussed earlier, you can head to www.codingblocks.net slash review. And happy holidays to all, right? Uh, what everybody doesn't know is Joe Zach, while he seems like he's probably the most festive of the bunch of us, he is the, the Grinch of the three of us. So, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm one of those warriors that you hear about that is uh, actively trying to destroy Christmas. Sorry. Yeah. So truly kick him in the shins. If you see him during this holiday <laughs> season, he, he needs some, yeah, I legitimately hate holidays. That's, that's crazy talk. So anyways, happy holidays to everybody. And while you're up there at CodyBlocks.net, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedbacks, questions, and rants to the Slack channel because it's brilliant and awesome. There's awesome people in there. And uh, you can get an invite there by going to codingblocks.com slash Slack. Yeah, and Logan, pet your dog. Pet your dog, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you can also follow us on Twitter or head over to codingblocks.net where you can find all our social links at the top of the page. Uh, love you guys. Thanks. Thanks.